Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, we've been looking forward to this book for a very, very, very long time. And it was, it was um, <clears throat> kind of charming. Kyle said, I don't know if anyone will show up for this event. And I says, you know what? This is a skylight book. I think people you know, like in the community would really like get into this book. So we're very happy that um, he's here. Uh, Kyle Cheka is a freelance writer and critic whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, New York Magazine, The New Republic, Rolling Stone, a Vox, The Paris Review, and other publications. He has contributed chapters. In <laughs> <laughs> yes, here I'm he like is. Waiting to come off stage or something. Let's, let's, there we go. Here we go. Here's Kyle. Um, <laughs> get my phone working here. And uh, Jeff, how many of you know how to pronounce Jeff's last name? <laughs> Who can guess Jeff's last name? What's Jeff's last name? What? Mana. Manoff. Actually, I just found out it's Mano, right? Mano. So this one's Jeff Mano. So um, we're happy to have him here. Um, he's from Los Angeles. Uh, he's a freelance writer and wrote the um, very popular book, A Burglar's Guide to the City, on the relationship between crime and architecture. So please welcome Jeff Mano. Did you like walking from backstage? Yeah, it's, it's, it's thrilling. Yeah, I should po apologize for my last name. My, uh, there's, a, there's a branch of our family that's from southern Indiana, so we pronounce everything wrong. And so we, we say may know instead of what one would normally say. Yeah, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to like read a little bit from the introduction of the book. Um, and the, it's kind of split into four chapters, and the first chapter deals with all the like contemporary things that are called minimalist and the things that people describe as minimalist today. Um, so it's all about like ways of simplifying your life and uh, buying products that are called minimalist, I guess. Um, so. Oh, and the, so I, like I've been writing this book about minimalism for like three years now, four years, it's been a long time. Uh, and whenever I tell someone, or I told someone that I was writing it, they were like, oh, so are you a minimalist? <laughs> like, is minimalism good or bad? Uh, and this is kind of a response to that question. Uh, in the apartment where I lived while I wrote this book, I could look around and count the objects that belonged to me. Not the couch, bed, television, or dining table, which came from my one roommate. Just a desk and a bookshelf that held most of the things I cared about. Books, papers, a few pieces of art. Unless you're wealthy or creative enough to afford a lot of space, there are two responses to living in New York. One is overstuffing a tiny space that eventually becomes unbearable, and the other is living like a minimalist. Without basements, spare closets, or extra rooms to stash stuff in, you're always conduiting. But the recession also seemed to usher in a larger minimalist moment. An aesthetic of necessity emerged as the economy came to a standstill. Shopping at thrift stores became cool. 
so did a certain style of rustic simplicity, the kind epitomized by the lifestyle magazine Kinfolk, which was founded around the time of the crash and took root in Portland, Oregon. As the magazine's soft focus photo shoots demonstrated, hosting an outdoor picnic with your friends decked out in DIY peasant shawls didn't cost very much. Brooklyn was filled with faux lumberjacks drinking out of mason jars. Conspicuous consumption, the ostentation of the previous decades, wasn't just distasteful, it was unreachable. This faux blue-collar hipsterism preceded the turn to high-gloss consumer minimalism that happened once the economic recovery kicked in, preparing the ground for its popularity. It makes sense that millennials embrace minimalism. My generation has never had a healthy relationship with material stability. There are always too few resources at hand or too much competition for what's left, a scenario that's engulfing not just one age group, but a wider, sw wider swath of people every year. Even as the traditional economy falls apart, we're awash in social media noise and new platforms competing for our attention, labor, and cash. Stability is no longer the default. My purpose in writing this book was to figure out the origins of the thought that less could be better than more. In possessions, in aesthetics, in sensory perception, and then the philosophy with which we approach our lives. Dissatisfaction with materialism and the usual rewards of society is not new. By looking at how that dissatisfaction has cycled through previous centuries, how artists and writers and philosophers have already contended with it, I could find what was truly worth keeping. Swerving between austerity and extravagance is stressful. Finding the source of our material anxiety might make it more manageable. I wanted to uncover a minimalism of ideas rather than things, not obsess over possessions or the lack thereof, but cha challenge our day-to-day -day experience of being in the world. Chronological history is too casual, or sorry, too causal an approach for minimalism. Its ideas don't have one linear path or evolution. It's more of a feeling that repeats in different times and places around the world. It's defined by the sense that the surrounding civilization is excessive, physically or psychologically too much, and has thus lost some kind of original authenticity that must be regained. The material world holds less meaning in these moments, and so accumulating more loses its appeal in favor of giving things up and isolating yourself whether literally becoming a hermit or nomad, or through art. No single English language word quite captures this persistent feeling of being overwhelmed and yet alienated, which is maybe why minimalism has become so widespread. I began thinking of this universal feeling as the longing for less. It's an abstract, almost nostalgic desire, a pull toward a different, simpler world, not past nor future, neither utopian nor dystopian. This more authentic world is always just beyond our current existence in a place we can never quite reach. Maybe the longing for less is the constant shadow of humanity's self-doubt. What if we were better off without everything we've gained in modern society? If the trappings of civilization leave us so dissatisfied, then maybe their absence is preferable and we should abandon them in order to seek some deeper truth. The longing for less is neither an illness nor a cure. Minimalism is just one way of thinking about what makes a good life, though it's a strategy that's particularly relevant when confronting the superhuman scale and pace of our time. So.
Cool. Thanks, Kyle. Um, so just very briefly, I'm just going to ask a few questions kind of per uh, section that Kyle reads, and then we'll throw things open at the end to Q&A. So if you've got a burning question, if you can hold on to it till the end, um, there'll be time for you to ask questions of your own. And um, we should be, uh, there'll be one more reading and, and then a couple questions. So in any case, uh, that's, the, that's the kind of format, so you know what you're, what you're in for here. It's very minimalist. <laughs> um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask is, is, is addressed more or less specifically by that, uh, the section that you just read. And so the, the, the flip side of that question was something else that I wanted to, to bring up and that isn't in that. And, and so there's, um, one of the things that I think uh, Kyle writes about really interestingly in the book is um, the exact opposite of the idea that minimalism is a kind of financial, um, something that it's, it's a necessity. You know, if we, if we can't afford to fill our apartments with clutter, you know, it's, it's because of uh, kind of a fallout from, the, from the, the financial crisis or from rampant gig economy insecurity that has, you know, plagued millennials and, and re results in faux lumberjack aesthetics. <laughs> Um, but the opposite of that is um, you've got a really great line where you're talking about um, Kim Kardashian and her uh, alt-right husband yeah. who uh, have, you know, so much space um, that they don't have to do anything with it. You know, it's like empty, <laughs> emptiness is an actually, it's a, it's a luxury item. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also a great description in there of a, of a famous photograph of Steve Jobs, uh, the founder of Apple, or co-founder, um, where he's just sitting in an empty room with like a lamp. Um, but, you know, it's almost as if uh, it's like uh, emptiness is a kind of braggadocio. You know, look at this mansion that I can afford and I'm not even going to put anything in it. Um, <laughs> I'm curious if you can just talk about that, the idea that minimalism has, has, a, has an exact opposite kind of financial resonance or cultural appeal. And it's this idea of the kind of the luxury of emptiness. Yeah, I wanted, I mean, I went to write the book uh, in, in part to explore the, like those two sides. Like on the one side, it's this aesthetic that looks like a necessity and looks like simplicity. But also over the past like decade or two, it's also become like the hallmark style of the heights of luxury. Like mm -hmm. it's a signifier of having tons of money, of having great taste. Like it's become this kind of pinnacle of the 2010s aesthetic for some reason. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to kind of figure out why that happened. But the like symbolism of it is so fascinating to me because it is like, oh, I can afford so much space that I'm just like luxuriating in emptiness and mm -hmm. I don't care about not having anything on my walls. Like the blank wall is the point of, of the minimalist aesthetic, which I mm -hmm. think like the, the photos of the Kardashian West home are like actually really ugly and like <laughs> upsetting because they're, they're so empty and they have nothing of interest in them also. Like I think, I think the, the, the minimalist luxury aesthetic is a kind of misinterpretation of, of minimalist ideas originally. They're kind of like the ideas applied to the extreme, like, sure. oh, like emptiness is cool, like let's have as much emptiness as possible. It becomes huh. like conspicuous consumption of emptiness, which is huh. totally not the point, right? <laughs> like, like the, the photos of that house just freak me out so much because it's as if you're like, in an unbounded beige space where there's just like <laughs> no furniture and no art and no anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny, the, the book is also kind of haunted by a figure um, who, you know, you've joked a few times about um, comparisons to um, the, or, or rather like uh, references to, to a certain person who is Marie Kondo. <laughs> And um, I guess I'm just curious, you know, you, you talk about aspirational austerity and, yeah. and the idea of, um, you know, decluttering as a service. Uh, I guess I'm just very curi uh, uh, curious if just very briefly you could just talk about that, the figure of Marie Kondo <laughs> as, as this idea of, you know, people who aren't necessarily millennials and, don't, and can actually afford to clutter their homes 
um, right. but finding a figure of cleanliness and and decluttering that kind of represents a kind of philosophical achievement. Yeah, I mean, she, like, I don't think Marie Kondo is bad necessarily. Like, I, I don't want to get into a fight <laughs> with her or something, yeah. but. She's here. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she recently put out a blog post that was like, why I am not a minimalist. <laughs> like, you know, the latest in a long line of minimalists who don't consider themselves minimalists. Um, sure. But I think like, the I wanted to kind of expand the story of minimalism or like even the, this cleaning binge beyond Marie Kondo because mm -hmm. I think by the time that the Kondo books were translated into English, there were already a bunch of bloggers who were like espousing minimalism and talking about more conscious consumption of material goods, like kind of rightly responding to a lot of Americans' anxiety over what they own and like people going into debt, buying too much stuff on Amazon. Um, so I think there was this wider kind of zeitgeist of like overconsumption or maybe consumption was made too easy by the internet. Um, sure. And so like Mary Kondo comes in as this kind of patron saint of like reconsidering what, what's in your house and like um, presenting a really easy way to approach this, this anxiety of materialism. Um, and I think it, it like helped a lot of people. Uh, but at the same time, what always bothered me about it and what like continues to bother me about it is that it's it's still an obsession with the stuff that's in your house it's just like an obsession with fewer of them like you're not there's a kind of like marxist critique of Marie Kondo in the book that like mm. you need to stop identifying with the objects like the problem is that you identify with the objects mm. not that you identify with too much of them so like maybe the real solution would be to find something else to identify with, which is not really what Mary Kondo talks about. Sure. Like, she's like, oh, throw away your stuff and you'll feel, feel better, not like go to therapy or like reconnect uh, with yeah. your family or whatever. Yeah. Like, we, it's still obsessing over the material goods that are yeah. there. Um, this is um, maybe um, the kind of question that you don't want to be asked the, uh, this early in the evening, but um, it's interesting to hear you talk about the idea that, you know, a long line of minimal minimalists who don't claim to be minimalists or claim not to be, and um, this idea of accidental minimalism, where you just ha you just have so much space, and your mansion in the Hollywood Hills is so <laughs> huge, that or Calabasas, wherever it is, um, that you don't even need to put anything in it. I guess I'm just curious, how would you define minimalism? Um, you know, yeah. is it uh, is it is it is it just the lack of objects, or is it the intentional lack of objects, or how? What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to divide between like the aesthetic of minimalism and the ideas of minimalism. Like, I think sure. there's a highly evolved aesthetic of minimalism right now that's very popular, and that's mm -hmm. the kind of look of austerity, like empty walls, empty floors, like very simple furniture, like often mid-century or like Bauhaus kind of stuff. Um, so there is, like the visual quality of minimalism is something that's simple uh, and like austere. There's like few things in it. Mm. Um, but then I like through the book, I wanted to get past that aesthetic, past the like reductionist aesthetic and talk about what I think are like the more original ideas of minimalism, especially in the 50s, 60s, which is like minimalism was a practice of like engaging with the world around you really directly and kind of getting rid of your preconceived notions about what is art or what is beautiful or like sure. what counts as music um, or like what should be in a space. Um, so to me, like my, my definition of minimalism I think is like paying attention to what's around you without judging it as quickly, maybe. 
um, like this comes up in the John Cage yeah. section of the book, like the, the famous 433 silent piece. Mm. Like this was not about having music that was nothing. It was about framing like the atmospheric sound around you as, as worthy of appreciation as music. And I think that's kind of a nice metaphor for what minimalism should be is like a tool to reconsider everything that's around you. Sure. Like find, find beauty in new places or something. Um, yeah, I think that's a great bridge to what I think you're going to read next. Um, but I wanted to just do one final question for, yeah. for, for this, um, which is, uh, you know, you've written in a really uh, compelling way about how these kinds of ideas do get spread and how the aesthetic of minimalism uh, became almost like a meme. Um, yeah. You know, you've written really convincingly about Airbnb and Instagram and that kind of thing. I guess I'm just curious if you can just kind of just talk a little bit about your analysis of exactly where these kind of visual motifs are coming from and how they're being disseminated. Yeah, I mean, I think like... Like, as in the introduction a little bit, I think one of the ways that minimalism became popular is because of the financial crisis, and that kind of, like, kicked off a little obsession with simplicity. But it's really, I think it's really key that this aesthetic became popular right around, like, kind of 2009 through 2012, which is when Instagram and, like, image-heavy social media was taking hold. And so this is, like, all of a sudden we're experiencing so much of, like, art and visual culture through the internet and through these social media platforms. And like minimalism is weirdly well adapted to uh, the internet. Cause like the internet is a blank white space and like minimalism is a way of like showing off something within a blank white space and, and kind of highlighting it and like creating visual emphasis on a few dramatic things. Um, and so I think like there's a way in which minimalism was well adapted to Instagram and then the two kind of became conflated. Like it does become a meme. I think mm -hmm. I write in the book about how like the minimalism hashtag has like hundreds of thousands of photos on it, but like the photos are like the Grand Canyon, like <laughs> like line drawn tattoos, like a yeah. rock. Like it, yeah. the, the more it was applied, I think the, wor the more the word minimalism was applied, the more it, the, like the less it meant uh, in the end, like it kind of got oversaturated. Um, and I think like, I don't know, I have this larger thesis <laughs> about how like social media platform, like there was a period over the pa past decade that like s digital platforms started really aggressively shaping what we experience in physical space. Mm. Like, you know, we live inside Facebook in some ways. Um, and so this like minimalist interior design aesthetic is really well adapted to Instagram and Airbnb, which are like, mm -hmm. you know, we, we consume the images first and then we consume the physical spaces that represent them, especially with Airbnb. Um, mm -hmm. So I kind of, I've written about like the generic style of minimalist Airbnbs where you can find the same like kind of exposed brick and wood ceiling loft anywhere in the world. Uh, and we kind of seek out that generic style. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it's just become kind of boring. <laughs> like yeah. like a, a cliche where it wasn't, sure. it was never supposed to be a cliche. Yeah. And it's such, a, it's such an interesting <laughs> feedback loop that I think that you've identified there because you know, as, as things look better on Instagram and then and that's where you're taking your photographs to maybe get someone to stay in an Airbnb, then more Airbnbs <laughs> are designed to look like that and mm -hmm. then the photos, et cetera, et cetera. But you get this, this endlessly consuming logic where architecture is distilled down to this kind of like, um, like yeah, lowest spatial denominator. Right, and minimalism is like, is 
is is that I think like it's a kind of scalable aesthetic solution where like any environment can be made minimalist by taking stuff out of it or like you can paint any wall white you can like or organizing your books by color yeah <laughs> yeah like if somehow if you're emphasizing like the visual superficial visual quality above all else um, then that becomes minimalist for some reason um, like there's a there's a Donald Judd quote that I always think of that's like he's like writing a note to himself in his notebook and he's like, hmm, maybe a lot of red is better than three colors. <laughs> I'm just like, this is like the, f the fundamental dichotomy of like, you know, minimalism doesn't just mean austerity or whatever. It can mean like a lot of one visual thing. And so like minimalism itself is like taken to excess in a weird way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can read. Cool. Read yeah, can read next week. I mean, <laughs> we were talking before about how you know discussing the book is more fun than reading from it. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so the book. Um, there's like parts of the book that are more like art criticism or art history, and then there are parts of the book that are a little more like experiential, like my own kind of experiments with minimalism, like listening to a lot of John Cage and then like hearing car noise as music in a weird way. Mm. Um, and so this part uh, was uh, me going to do some sensory deprivation tank sessions because uh, I figured that, um, you know, if minimalism is about, is sometimes about like buffering yourself and like sealing yourself off from the world and only experiencing like things that you think will be pleasant, then like sensory deprivation tanks are the most minimalist thing you can possibly do because you're like feeling and seeing and hearing nothing at all. Um, like over the course of writing the book, I was getting very, very stressed out about it. <laughs> As you do when you write books. Um, and I, I also had the sense that like my overstimulation could be cured by like floating in the dark for a while. Uh, and so I, I tested it out. Um, yeah, so that's, this is the part of the book. And I, so I live in Washington, D.C. now, uh, and I went to this, like, float tank spa, as they call it, on K Street, which is, like, where all the lobbying firms are. Uh, and I went to the spa called Solex, and the guy who runs it was like, oh, yeah, like, we have a ton of clients coming in here, like lots of politicians come in so they can like rest and make creative decisions. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is so bizarre. Um, I don't want my politicians like floating in the dark <laughs> more than they already are. Um, yeah, so the, the guys who runs the spa is named Darius Viziri. Uh, Darius was serene. I was jealous of his glowing skin, a putative benefit of Epsom salt exposure. His white polo shirt was tucked into fitted chinos, and he wore a pair of red-rimmed circular glasses. Despite the scrupulously healthful vibe, I couldn't help but feel I was participating in something salacious. Darius led me down the hallway, pointed out a bathroom, and opened the door to my dark-tiled room with a glassed-in shower in the corner for washing before and after the floating. The white pod loomed in the rest of the space. He turned on the pod using a touchscreen on the wall, and 95-degree water began rushing into it as if it was filling the basin of a giant toilet, 
except a toilet that was installed with LED lights slowly shifting color across the rainbow spectrum. A recording of birds chirping emanated from some internal speaker. The sound was particularly surreal because the room was so sterile and unnatural, the only other hint of nature a bedraggled houseplant and one large rock inexplicably placed on the floor. When the filtered water rises to the lights, Darius instructed me, step in, shut the lid, and the hour starts counting down. After a few minutes, the lights inside fade to darkness and the sound stops. Instead of relaxed, I felt slightly terrified. I sometimes suffer from acute claustrophobia. I hate elevators and can't stand it when the subway stops underground for long. I think it's partly boredom that I'm afraid of, the threat of being disconnected after becoming too used to the constant barrage of stimuli. I was not actually looking forward to sealing myself inside a clamshell with no other activity for an hour, no matter how soothing. Maybe it would be too much silence. Despite my nerves, I did as instructed. I stripped entirely, showered, still feeling awkward, and gingerly dipped a toe into the water. When I immersed myself, my body bounced up like the bob on a fishing lure, three quarters in the water and one quarter out. Then the lights turned off and I was left alone. Calling it womb-like would be an understatement since I was literally immersed in liquid inside a biomorphic capsule. The floating experience immediately cancels out a lot of noise and not just sound waves. I felt my mind cut off from physical sensation since I no longer had to think about where my limbs were moving in space. There was no visual information to process. Opening my eyes was the same as closing them. But the silence was far from complete. I could still hear the low vibration of motors and tires spinning on the pavement outside. Then I noticed squeaks and splashes from the pods that must have been just on the other side of the walls of my chamber. I couldn't stop thinking about how there were other naked people floating in other pods in other rooms sealed away just like me. We were all in our own separate environments, each divorced from the world and yet somehow also together, like the future forecasting precogs in Minority Report, immersed in their glowing blue communal hot tub, except totally useless. The artificiality of the situation began to bother me. I was consuming industrialized silence as a luxury, paying an hourly rate for an on-demand product. In the face of too much 21st century uh, sorry. In the face of too much 21st century stimulation, I closed myself into a Stone Age cave in order to deal with it, the ultimate regression. That's, that's that. Um, well, yeah, I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say that the, the uh, last quarter of the book roughly takes place in a kind of a mega trip through Japan. <laughs> um, a mega trip is a good where you go to everything from Zen rock gardens to just restaurants in Tokyo and whiskey bars and that kind of thing. Um, but you do um, have some really great writing in that last section uh, where you talk about concepts borrowed from Buddhism about the idea of um, what is emptiness, what is fullness. Um, I guess I wanted to ask about, um, you know, you point out many times in the book where the sensory deprivation tank I think is a good example, but also four minutes and 33 seconds is, is, a, is another one where by removing everything and slowly just hacking away at all the sensory inputs that the, that the, that the world offers, you actually end up revealing much more than you thought was there in the, in the first time. Yeah. And you, kind of, you find a kind of fullness through emptiness. 
Um, I guess I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that, the, the, the kind of the Buddhist turn at the end of the book, mm -hmm. um, and maybe how it addresses these questions of, of um, plenitude in the void and, yeah. the, and the way in which that's, that's found. Like you can, you can uncover plenitude by, by cutting things away, ironically. Totally. I think like, so the, the four sections of the book are called reduction, emptiness, silence, and shadow. And so shadow is like the, the Japanese, the Japan part of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like in the end, I thought of these all as like different kinds of emptiness, kind of like different flavors huh. of, of nothing. Um, and I think like the, it, it kind of also roughly progresses from like material to immaterial. So you go through like the lifestyle stuff, you go through the art and architecture, you go through music and perception. And in the Japan section, it's really, to me, it's like the most idea driven and the most like philosophical. And like a lot of minimalism, I think, does come back to ideas of Japanese Buddhism. Um, like Mary Kondo, it's kind of a, a more literal reference. Like she is Japanese, she was practiced in a Shinto shrine. Um, but also you see different artists like Agnes Martin and Donald Judd reference Zen Buddhism, like Cage was obsessed with Buddhism. Um, and there was this moment in the 50s where uh, DT Suzuki was teaching at Columbia. It was, he was kind of the like, almost the like patient zero of transmitting Buddhist thoughts into the US. Um, and that was coincidentally like when ideas of minimalism started to happen, uh, so I, I really thought I should go to Japan and like see see what was there. And there's also this cliche of like a minimalist Japan, like how mm. is Tokyo just like infinite capsule hotels and like blank right. white spaces. Um, so I kind of wanted to see like what the reality was and what what I could find there. Um, and I did like speaking of generic Airbnbs, like my my Tokyo Airbnb was just like the blankest, emptiest space I had ever imagined. Like <laughs> it was it was really bizarre um mm. but yeah i think like i wanted to i guess i wanted to like dig out as much stuff as possible and like try to get get my way to the other side of that idea and like find the plenitude or whatever um sure. and i do think that's what i found there like i think the the rock gardens were really a beautiful experience um and this kind of like visual presentation that like looks empty and looks blank but is actually full of meaning and symbolism and like history mm -hmm. um and i also went to go visit the graves of these two writers these two like mid-century japanese writers who i really love who are kuki shuzo and junichiro tanizaki um like that was a very moving experience to me too sure. i don't know it's a hard it's a hard question to address um yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. A... I mean, to go back to the to the cage example, you know, the, in the in the chapter where you're writing mostly about his composition of, of silence, you know, which in and of itself is kind of a contradiction in terms. But it's it's not so much that you were, or in fact, it's the opposite of the fact that you found silence when you went back to the barn, for example, where mm -hmm. the where that composition was originally performed. Um, but it's the idea that by trying to focus on the the absence of noise, you start finding things like the burbling of a stream underneath the bench, and you yeah, start yeah. finding like the falling of leaves and like distant cars on roads that you can't see. And there's a, that's that's what I think is so interesting about this idea of by removing all the things that you 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 end up actually uncovering much more. Yeah, like you don't emptiness shouldn't be the point. Like the sure. point shouldn't be a vacuum mm -hmm. or like a, a state of perfect. 
there's no end point to minimalism. Like mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't remove and remove and remove until you have nothing. It's the point is to like re- remove the things that you don't want, as Mary Kondo says, but also like reconsider what is there in front of you and like take like be more conscious of what's what's happening around you. I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so, like I think minimalism rather than like a style or an aesthetic should be like a process or a tool to find your way towards something else uh, rather than just like thinking that this blank white aesthetic is really cool and that's how everything should look. Um, well, I'll ask one one more question and, and then throw things open um, to uh, the audience. So if you've got something that, that you want to ask, um, get get ready. Um, but uh, I, w- one of the things that I th- one of the the best anecdotes in the book um, is one that we were talking about briefly out on the sidewalk um, that I would love for you just to repeat for for the audience, but also I think shows the kind of the 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 unexpected risk of minimalism. You know, which is that you know when you cut everything away, you know you might only <laughs> just find more of yourself. Yeah, I'm curious if you could talk about the Philip Johnson. I, I should have like dug that up um so the i mean a a fair amount of the first chapter uh, oh you have it yeah (laughs) um okay so yeah i would i i really like this moment too it's like it's such a funny moment um so the yeah the emptiness chapter of the book addresses like art and architecture and the architect who i think is like most responsible for the kind of minimalist aesthetic is philip johnson um who is like a kind of rich kid who went to Harvard and like was the first architecture curator at the Museum of Modern Art. And so he would travel to Europe and like bring back these Bauhaus ideas and aesthetics to America. Uh, he was also a Nazi. So that's <laughs> the, the kind of like soft fascism of minimalism is definitely present in, in Philip Johnson. Um, so there is, he, he was like a practicing architect but he like didn't really have any projects because he was just this rich dude who was like a tastemaker. And so he was like, okay, I'm gonna go buy this land in rural Connecticut, or not rural, but like fancy rural Connecticut. Uh, and I'm going to build myself a house and the house is going to be entirely made of glass. It'll have no walls, no windows, like just a transparent floating box. Uh, and he kind of stole the design from Mies van der Rohe. Uh, which is another, but he presented this house as like the the ultimate modernist house. It's called the glass house, and there's only one. It's the glass house. Um, And this is uh, what happened when he stayed over in the house for the first time in 1949. Uh, There's such a thing as too much perfection, a space so precisely composed that despite its emptiness, it can't make room for anything else. That's why a space like the glass house uh, or the empty Brooklyn condo feels like an exercise in narcissism. One night when Johnson was staying with an employee who lived nearby, he decided to sleep in the glass house for the first time. The just built box loomed in the corner of the field, dark and empty, a man-made mechanical apparition in the midst of nature. The architect paced across the lawn and opened the door to the unlit interior. But when he switched on the lamp sconces in the corners, the electric light bounced off the interior of the glass walls so that instead of the view he had pruned outside, all that appeared was his own reflection staring back. Johnson frantically phoned his associate. You've got to come over immediately, he said. I turned on the lights and all I see is me, 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 me. To solve the problem, he installed lamps outside too, illuminating the branches (laughs) of the trees above like a bonfire. Um, 
And this is like when you <laughs> when you do empty out your apartment or when you do vanquish everything from a space, like you're still like contending with what's left, which is you, like your own your own tastes, your own preconceptions. Like I think there's a way in which the aesthetic of minimalism speaks to a kind of self-abnegation or like a you know yeah, speaks to a, a like aspirational death of self, but actually it ends up focusing all the attention back onto you, as it did Philip Johnson. Hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I think uh, it's an amazing uh, example of just sort of the, the the risks of cutting everything in the world away, and then you know, uh, somewhat unsurprisingly, you then find that the only thing left is you, <laughs> and uh, this kind of like a hypertrophying of the of the self, you know, is one of the one of the risks of, uh, that minimalism presents. Yeah, that's why I. I like it as the idea of a challenge rather than like a, a an achievement. Like you should always be challenging what's there in front of you. And if, if you haven't like considered yourself as part of that environment, like then that's just another object that's there in front of you. Yeah, like, that's interesting. Um, anyway, questions? Yeah, questions in the, the, in the audience. Um, the guy in the back. <laughs> yeah, that's. Totally. Um, I mean, I think there's, when you encounter like the minimalist aesthetic in the world, I think it can feel really oppressive, like especially the kind of Kardashian West or like just these extremely minimalist spaces that have become, that were never the point to begin with, I think. So you step into this space that's like huge and empty and white and doesn't have any human scale anything in it. Uh, and I think that, that becomes really oppressive, it's like inhuman. Um, and it's also like, it can make you feel like you don't belong, like that you're not supposed to be there, which is totally not the point, I think. Um, and I also like, in this vein, I think a lot about how the vocabulary of minimalist spaces is mostly drawn from European modernism, which was like, an architectural idea that was like supposed to be relevant for all of humanity and was like this infinitely replicable style and structure and idea. But it's actually just like a, a kind of period style of a bunch of like white dudes in Europe in the mid-century. And like it's kind of bizarre that they they were like, you know what, we've solved this problem for humanity. Like we should just build white boxes everywhere. I think that's the idea that there's like one set solution that can be applied to everyone and everything is like the, the kind of soft fascism of minimalism. Well, yeah, I mean, the I do, I always want to differentiate between like what this stuff means now and how it's used now versus what the original ideals were. Like, definitely, like, the Bauhaus was very anti-fascist. <laughs> like, the Nazis literally shut it down. But I think the the ways in which those design ideals now are held up as kind of the, the pinnacle of aesthetic achievement and are like kind of applied without context is the problem. So like, in the book, I kind of wanted to restore context to these these things and instead of like like when you see this style think about the history rather than just thinking that this is super tasteful and cool
<laughs> yeah, the, the problem of book writing. Um, yeah, I think I had been talking to my agent for a long time of like about like what book should I write? Maybe I should write about this or that. Um, and then I had I was writing this essay for the New York Times Magazine. They had a column called First Words, which was like you take a word that is like omnipresent for some reason, and you kind of ask like how has its meaning changed? Uh, and I thought minimalism was a really good example of that because like my reference frame for minimalism was art history and like you know the '60s Manhattan meaning of minimalism. Like people were applying it to everything. Like your skincare routine was minimalist. Mm. Your like furniture was minimalist. Your beer was minimalist. I don't know. Um, so as I was writing that piece, I kept like digging up different stories and people and characters that were like participants in minimalism. And I think like that piece was only twelve hundred words. But as I was writing it, I was like, oh yeah, there's enough material for a book. Like I could carry two hundred pages on this. And there was like more and more history I wanted to like keep going with. But yeah, then it took two years to figure out how to write the book. <laughs> that was another problem. So it was like what is coming after this minimalist wave, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I get this question a lot and I'm really glad I got it here because what the answer I always give is like like pure West Coast American aesthetics. Like, <laughs> like I think, um, you know, I, I hope we've hit peak minimalism already. Like I think it's become a cliche and a kind of like not that, not that interesting, not that nice anymore. Um, but I think it's like, the the taste is always evolving, obviously. So I think now we have all these big white empty spaces. What will we fill them with? Oh, we'll fill them with like lots of plants, like nicely textured ceramics and like textiles. Uh, you know, maybe some like crystals or something. Like, I feel like just very like West Coast vibe. Like, you know, bringing the humanity back into the equation a little bit. Uh, that's kind of my. That's my prediction, at least. A little more new agey stuff, a little more quirky, but still a lot about like sensory perception, like things that are beautiful to contemplate, which I think is still like a nice minimalist thing, as long as you're like paying attention to something and like getting visually engaged with it. That seems cool to me. Um, Nick. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like balance is hard to find. Um, I think, like my favorite minimalism influencer, I guess, is Donald Judd, who's like, you know, a mid-century American artist. Um, it's, it's a good question. So like Donald Judd is great. He's like, to me, he's as much of a lifestyle tastemaker as he is an artist, because he like bought up this giant loft building in Soho and like, turned it into like the, his vision is what we now think of when we think of like an artist loft. And then he moved to rural Texas and like started turning these airplane hangers into his house. And so he like aestheticized empty space and like made this really creative way of living, like kind of out of nothing. 
he like designed his own tables and chairs and desks and like collected like always collected things really intentionally and knew exactly what he liked at all times um i really like how he has the same giant deli slicer in Soho that he does in Marfa because he just thought it was a really good deli slicer. Like, no matter that this is like not a conventionally beautiful object, but he like loves it. Um, so I think he's like, he's my favorite example of minimalist taste because it's like always really considerate and yet never homogenous. Like everything is unique and yet fits together. But like, he only found such balance because he had like acres and acres of empty space to play with. Like he bought up giant storefronts and like grocery stores and turned them into his house. So that's that doesn't seem achievable for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, Donald Judd. He was he had a lot of paradoxes. I think like he started out his career as an art critic. And then he just spent the rest of his life like yelling about how art critics suck and like how writing about art is meaningless and like everyone gets him wrong. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely a very interesting figure. No, no. So um, the cover is really awesome, and I love talking. Oh, sorry. Um, I love talking about the cover. The designer uh, is named Tree Abraham. Uh, and she's a freelance designer who Bloomsbury uh, contracted to do the book. Um, and so, like, so the, the jacket, you can see, like, the half jacket is here. But if you take off the book jacket, <laughs> it's like QVC here. Um, it, you can see this whole shape. It's very fine paper. <laughs> uh, and, like, so the, the same shape is on the back and the front. Um, yeah, so the, they had sent me two options for the cover, actually, and I was like, this this one is sick. I love it. Um, so I think the palette's very beautiful, but also, you know, the idea was to turn the book itself into a minimalist object. And, like, a minimalist object is something you can, like, contemplate as itself and not need to interpret in any way. Um, so that's kind of the idea, but to me it's also about, like, the ambiguity of minimalism and like this shape is a kind of slight optical illusion and it like kind of looks different from every angle that you look at it. Um, and this, this kind of like white silhouette in the middle uh, turns it into something that's more ambiguous and more multivalent. So that's, that's what I also wanted to do with minimalism is like turn it into something that looks different to different people and like always shows off new angles of, of itself. Uh, yeah, but I love the cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so the, the question was about like this this question of like is the iPhone actually minimalist or like is technology can technology be minimalist maybe and I think I don't th I I kept wanting to write an essay that's just called like stop calling technology minimalist because it's <laughs> like it never is um, yeah yeah 
So like the the Johnny Ive like style of the iPhone with its like super simple silhouette and it's like just a rectangle and it's just a screen, like that it encourages you to think of the entire internet contained in that one simple object. But really like it's relying on all of that superstructure and like the the underground cables for the internet and the you know factories in China and the mineral mines. Like these are all parts of what we rely on to use the internet. It's not just like this object that you hold in your hand. Um, yeah, so I like I addressed the that paradox of technology and like the kind of digital overstimulation of the internet. I think like minimalism is a reaction against that. Like I think I always think about how like why would we need anything but a blank empty room if we're like barraged by images on our phone every five seconds? Like. Why would you want more images in your surrounding if you're already consuming all of them through your phone? Um. There's actually some really interesting writing and, and, and speculation about that kind of combines a couple of these questions just about like what's after the iPhone. You know, like there's this idea that Johnny Ive and Apple kind of reduced the iPhone to this thing that there's no, there's no, you know, the ne plus ultra of designer, there's nothing beyond it. Um, but so the the the, the res response in cell phone design is like, what's after minimalism? Um, you know, there's like all of these. You know, like the flip phone is coming back. Um, there are these really chunky, aggressive, like super masculine kind of phones that you can get on on different websites that just look like, uh, you know, the sharper image. You know, re came back from the dead. They're just like super chunky, carbon yeah. fibery looking things with knobs and textures, and just like they look like yeah, you know, like a, a kid's walkie-talkie. Um, but like, what is the aesthetic that comes after the iPhone, and how does it accommodate things like the infinite capacity that the phone has, but also the fact that like, yeah, what is beyond the, this like perfect little Johnny Ive screen? Yeah, like the screen gets flatter and flatter and thinner and thinner and wider and wider, and yeah. it's like, what? When does it just evanesce into, I guess, like VR essentially? Sure. Yeah, Though yeah. now we do have like the light phone, which is like the e-ink screen that uh, only does text messages and yeah, like yeah. like that in some ways is more minimalist than the iPhone even mm -hmm. though I don't really want to call it minimalist because yeah. it's like it has all the same problems um, yeah the, the question of what comes after is really fascinating I think like more analog experience is interesting yeah. I think there was this like portable video game system that the controller was a crank on the side of yeah. the thing and so yeah. you only controlled it by like cranking back and forth Oh, okay. So maybe we'll have that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I saw. Crank phone. Um, I think I don't know if it was Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever, but like on some social media platform recently, I saw a photograph of. I think it was an artist actually, but she had designed her own um, rotary dial uh, cell phone. So <laughs> you could actually go out and make phone calls, but it was you're carrying a, a rotary dial telephone. But I feel like that kind of return to maximalist analog experience, even in objects, is definitely on the horizon. Yeah, I think that'd be very cool. So, <laughs> yeah. um, any other? Yeah, so can can we find a like pre-capitalist minimalism or like an uncommodified minimalism? So sorry. Yeah, I mean I think like to me minimalism is not about commodified products necessarily, but like about like focusing on your own experience of things and like paying attention. Um so I don't think it's like totally reliant on capitalism to exist uh, but I have this example in the Japan chapter of the book of like 
the Heian era of Japan, which was around the year like 900, 1000. Um, and like the Heian court people were like absolutely obsessed with everything that was around them. They were like connoisseurs of every blooming flower and like every kind of weather and like what kind of branch should I attach to this poem or like how, what kind of calligraphy should I use to write to someone? So there were these like hyper aestheticized, like kind of minimalist enjoyers of everything that was around them. But like this kind of lifestyle was only enabled by their like tons of slaves essentially and like the massive court system that held them up. Like I'm sure the peasants were not enjoying the blooming flowers in the same way that they were because they had to like go work the fields and like carry these athletes around in their like carts. You know, like they were, I think, I don't know, I, we're like cavemen minimalist, who knows? But I think like the, the enjoying life on like a purely aesthetic basis is something that's always probably enabled by like exploitation or like commodification of something else, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I also like the example of St. Francis in the book who's like legendarily ascetic, but then he becomes so ascetic that like these people at a monastery like make up a, a special cell for him. And he's like, no, 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 this is not right at all. Like, please throw a bunch of dirt in it and like <laughs> put a rock in there for my pillow. And then it will finally be horrible <laughs> enough for me to, to sleep in. So like even, even that drive toward austerity becomes like its own kind of connoisseurship <laughs> and like becomes like a, a race to see who can deal with the worst shit or something. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so really interestingly, uh, Yayoi Kusama is who introduced Donald Judd to his dealer, his first art dealer. And Donald Judd put Kusama in his like original essay on minimalism, which he called like specific objects. And so he talked about how Kusama's early work was like putting all these like phallic knobs on furniture so that it turned it into like these really weird objects that like had no use anymore and could only be like aesthetically contemplated. So I think like Kusama is actually extremely minimalist because she's like always about returning you to your own perception of a space or a, a thing. Like the infinity rooms are meant to like destroy your ego and like, you know, destroy, dissolve the self in this like infinite field. But then the problem is that we like bring iPhones into them and just like consume them as a photo backdrop, uh, which is like not the minimalist goal, I suppose. Like she wouldn't call herself a minimalist either. She doesn't call herself anything. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a great, it's, the history is really interesting because she was there in Soho in the 60s, like participating in all this stuff. Should we wrap it up? Yeah, do you want to sign some books? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thanks <laughs> to Kyle books. for reading it through yeah. the book and introducing us <laughs> to the book. <laughs>
and thanks for coming out. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, there'll be a table coming out here in front. And um, so if you want to pick up a copy, Kyle will sign it uh, minimally. <laughs> and uh, other further questions and whatnot too, you can follow up up here. Yes. Uh, sure. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.